following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So, um, how many of you have heard that old hymn that we just sang, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? How many of you have ever sung it at church? Or maybe you've heard it on, the, I don't know, about the radio. Have you heard it on the radio? Does anybody listen to the radio anymore? <laughs> Um, there's a very famous version of that song by the Carter family and Johnny Cash where they change the words of the verses around to be more specific about certain details related to the undertaker. Not the wrestler, but, you know. <laughs> <coughs> wow. Oh, man, I, I just dated myself using WWF. <laughs> it can only get better from here, my friends. <laughs> It is not a song that we tend to use at Artisan. I think that is the only time we've ever sung it here. Um, Taken at face value, there are parts of it that can feel kind of comforting, because it does sort of say that whatever pain and loss we experience in the here and now will be made better in some future, in the, in the, in the by and by. Right? That's an old-timey phrase if I ever heard one, right? In the by and by. And that is true. I want you to, I want you to know that as a pastor, I believe that that's true. That whatever pain and hurt we experience now will be healed by the time things end. Um, and yet, we don't tend to use that type of song. I don't tend to talk about faith in that particular way because in my experience, um, the more preoccupation Christian or a group of Christians has about the end of everything, the less earthly good they tend to do right now. And I mean that in all kinds of ways. I'll give you one specific example. So if you are the, if your Christian belief is that um, what has to happen is the world has to get even worse than it already is to the point where it's seems like it's beyond redemption. And only then will that sort of trigger the return of Jesus where he will you know, fly in on an eagle and smite all the bad people and carry away all the good ones and leave behind the rest of creation to its chaos. If that's your theological viewpoint, then why would you ever bother to do anything along the lines of loving your, na- loving your neighbors, working for justice, trying to soothe the pain and uh, problems in the world today? Because the, the, the worse things get, the closer we are to the end, and that's where we're really pointed. Have you ever been in a situation where that seemed to be the prevailing theological viewpoint? Right. What that does is I think instead of drawing people into God's love by offering them hope, it tends to draw people away from engagement with the world. Right. The world. Even the phrase the world is a tell, isn't it? Yeah. And because I believe that God is doing work in the world now, in the here and now, and that God is calling all of us to be part of the work that God wants to do in the world in the here and now. Um, that preoccupation with the end, even in the, even in the fairly innocuous and comforting form of in the sweet by and by, things will be better, I think that often um, isn't productive for us. And there's another reason why I don't tend to use this song or talk about faith in that way, which is that it it can often veer into the territory of religious platitudes, right? And in this series where we're talking about the world falling apart, we're acknowledging the reality 
that all kinds of things seem to be a total mess, both on the macro level and on the micro level. And we've given examples of that. You shared some examples. I've shared some examples, right? In that kind of the world, of world, the last thing that we need is religious platitudes. The last thing we need is someone to say, um, well, whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. Or uh, it must be some sin in your life that you need to root out in order for the things to get better for you. Or, to put it to the point of this topic, everything will be okay in the end. Even though I believe that that's true, I do not think that that is a worldview. I don't think that's a, an ethic. I don't think that's a, a way to base our faith in Jesus Christ on... Uh, uh, I don't think it's a way that we can do any good with our faith. I'm reminded of, uh, of texts in the New Testament, like from James chapter 2, that says, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So if you've ever been like on Twitter after a, after a disaster and get, see all the, all the politicians getting dragged for saying thoughts and prayers, <laughs> it's usually by not religious people, but they could be quoting James chapter two. They could just quote that to them. It would work. Or how about John 10, 10, which is a, a, a half of a verse that's worth memorizing. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly which to me speaks not only of eternal life, but of life in the here and now and the abundance that God wants to bring to us by the transformation of our minds and lives and hearts. So, That all being said, it is yet normal and understandable to be wondering what the end of the world will be like. Right? Who of us has not been somewhat interested in that topic on some level? Right? Whether it's like a scientific level thinking about the heat death of the universe. Um, did I get that right, science nerds? Or, or, or a, like a religious level, like, um, some of the fiction that cropped up in the Christian subculture maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> or 40. I mean, it's, it's a tale as old as time. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Where is Angela Lansbury when you need her? <laughs> it's normal to look at the scriptures and to say, what does this have to tell me and teach me about how things will end? What, what clues might I find? What hope could I look for? What warnings should I be heeding? And the, the, the major problem that I see with that is that it's very, very, very difficult to understand the parts of the Bible that seem maybe to be talking about those things. Right, so most often people would point to the book of Revelation. You just heard some from the book of Revelation a minute ago. You'll hear a little bit more later. Maybe the book of Daniel. People would point to these books in the Bible as places that talk about the end of all things in a sort of prophetic way. And the temptation becomes for both lay people in the church and leaders in the church who want to leverage lay people in the church. The temptation becomes to imagine that you have some unique decoder ring that allows you to explain what all these complicated images and ideas actually mean. 
And I would caution you against anyone who claims to have a simple interpretation of these texts. I would caution you against anyone who, who says anything that seems like they think they have a decoder ring. And I would especially conscious, uh, 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 especially caution you against anyone who is saying the end is near. And I would especially, especially caution you against anyone who's saying the end is near and give me money. <laughs> Because there's very few things that sell as much as a guide to the, to the Jesus zombie apocalypse, right? And for what it's worth, I would say that the book of Revolution, uh, Revelation, excuse me, the book of Revelation is much more about political issues of its day than it is about a religious allegory describing the end of the world in some future. Right. And the, the, the challenge here, as with so much of Scripture, is that it's poetic. And we don't always like figurative language. We don't, we're not necessarily good at applying poetry to our sacred texts. We want it to be a little more concrete than that, a little more um, straightforward than that. But it just isn't. I'm, I'm with Eugene Peterson. Here's what he said about the book of Revelation and its author, St. John. If the revelation is not read as a poem, it is simply incomprehensible. The inability or refusal to deal with St. John the poet is responsible for most of the misreading, misinterpretation, and misuse of this book. And I'm also with Zach Lambert, who I saw a pastor on Twitter this week who said, beware of Christians who literalize the words of Revelation about burning suns and seven-headed dragons, but spiritualize the words of Jesus about helping the poor, oppressed, and marginalized. Now, it might be a fascinating thing to do. To, to study through the book of Revelation and try our best to understand all of the poetry that's in it. We could talk about how, the, how it echoes themes of the Hebrew prophets who were active during the time of Babylonian exile and how that informs the figurative language that John uses in the book of Revelation. We could talk about how uh, it presents a counter-narrative of peace in the middle of an empire that used bloodshed to conquer the whole world. We could talk about how in the scriptures... The, the story starts with a tree in a garden and the story ends with a tree in a city. And what does the symbolism of that possibly mean? Because I do think that this book, as mysterious and whacked out as it is, offers us the possibility of meaning making in our modern world. But the truth is that it is, it is beyond the range of one sermon, certainly, to try to do that all in one, um, cohesive uh, presentation. Um, but I promise that's not a cop-out. It's just that that's not really my point in talking about what it means to be in the world that is falling apart and to think about what happens in the end. It's beside the point, my point anyway, to try to apply the book of Revelation into some meaning that unlocks secrets because there's a better way to do it. There's a, there's a simpler way to apply it that's uh, accessible and usable for us right away without that long Bible study that would be required to understand it really in its entirety, right? So what I want to do for you is lay out a few big picture ideas from the book of Revelation. 
And by the way, it is the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. It is the revelation of John the Apostle. Uh, I will not criticize you if you say Revelations, but I want you to criticize me if I ever slip up and say it. (laughs) I want to give you some big picture ideas from the book of Revelation that are easy to understand, that require no numerology, that require no master's level in literary criticism, which would be my bias, and that offer meaning for us right now. And the funny thing is that in all of the ink that has been spilled about the book of Revelation, especially in 20th century America and 21st century America, these are the things that don't get any attention at all. Big picture themes that can be soothing and useful to us right now. Here's the first one. God is always present. And it says in Revelation 1 and then later again at the end of the book, the God is Alpha and Omega. These are, the, these are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying God is A to Z. And whatever messed up letter we are in right now, God was there at A. God will be there at Z. God was present at the foundations of the world. God will be present at the end of the world, whatever it looks like. You don't need to know the details in order to believe and accept and benefit from the idea that God will be there then, just as God has been with us all along. Now, in some ways, it's a little pat to say it, but in some ways, on some level, that ought to be enough for us. Maybe on our best days, that would be enough for us. No matter what's happening to me right now, I am trusting that God was present in creation, whatever the beginnings of the world looked like, and there's lots of arguments about that too, and God will be present at the end, whatever that looks like. I don't need to know what the mark of the beast means. I don't need to know what the dragon symbolizes. All I need to know is that God is, God is here now, and God will be there. Then, excuse me. That's the first big picture principle. The second one is that Jesus sits on the throne. Jesus, the great Lamb of God. You really, you must not miss this part of the story when you get distracted by all of the figurative language, right? Remember, if you've been here when we've said the creed or if you've been around enough to know what the creed says, that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, once he shall come to judge the living and the dead. It speaks to the reign of Christ over all of the world. All that business in the New Testament about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, right? Which, um, by the way, that's also a political statement, <laughs> of its time, because if you, if you proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that you will kneel down before Jesus, you are necessarily saying that the Roman emperor is not the Lord, which is the term that the Roman emperor preferred to be called by. Suffice it to say that if we know that Jesus rules and apply a little bit of understanding of how Jesus lived and taught, we can see that the, the Lamb of God, which is the language used of Jesus in the book of Revelation, is seated on the throne. And that means that the way that Jesus rules is through meekness and self-sacrifice rather than domination and violence. That Jesus' way is the way of peace. And then when, when the king of peace is seated on the throne, that's a very, very different thing than a, a king of violence being seated on the throne. Here's where I would say, uh, speaking of things that probably aren't fair to just drop into a sermon and then leave there, um, if your view of the end requires war, it is not a Christian view of the end. 
And if we could get American Christians to understand and accept that, wow, that would make a difference. Here's another big picture principle that just, it just doesn't sell novels. <laughs> but it ought to, because what I want to tell you is that Jesus will end the suffering of his people, by which I mean all people. Do you remember the benediction from last week if you were here? See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. I love to quote this passage from the book of Revelation. It's my favorite part of the whole book. Because it offers such a simple and beautiful alternative to all the weirdness. I try to encourage Christians not to get bound up with the dragon or the lake of fire or the mark of the beast and instead to dwell with this image of God wiping away tears from every eye. Have you cried this week? Has someone you love cried this week? Can you imagine that the ultimate work of God is wiping away the tears from every eye. And here's one more. This is a principle right out of the book of Revelation. The way into the city of God is always open. Forever and always. In Revelation 21, which is the second to last chapter of the book, there's an extensive description of the walls around the city of God. Now, you have to imagine, um, you know, you have to put on your, your Game of Thrones hat a little bit and imagine a city that's walled around like that. Why is there a wall there? It's to protect from attack. It's to um, shield while you attack out. And what is there in the, in the walls to let good, the good people in and out? There are gates, right? And there's all kinds of description in Revelation 21 about the, the great high wall, and it has 12 gates. And each gate has a, a different inscription based on the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's a special makeup of each gate, and there's markings on it. And three of them face this direction, and three face that direction, and three face that direction, and three face that direction. And wow, isn't this getting weird? What can we take from all this? What is the meaning of it all? Let's see, if the tribes of Benjamin are facing to the west, after all of this stuff, then what does it say at the end of the chapter? Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night here. Do you see how if you get caught up and distracted by trying to decoder ring the text, you miss the most important part? Twelve gates, twelve tribes. What does it all mean? Four cardinal directions. Don't bother with all of that. Her gates, the city's gates, will never be shut. Not by day, and guess what? There's no night. (laughs) It's too good to be true. Like so much of the gospel preached uh, in this new way that has made my life alive over my adult life, my life alive over my life. Did that make total sense to you? Because I, I can hardly even explain to you 
how beautiful this version of the gospel has become to me. And in comparison, how ugly the version of the gospel that I was given has become to me. And listen, you know when I say things like that, it's not out of spite for my family or the church that raised me. I learned so much and, and really did come to true and meaningful faith in those settings. And yet, as I got older and older and older and dug deeper and deeper and deeper into what was behind some of it, it became less and less satisfying and meaningful. And just about the time I was ready to pitch the whole thing off the side of the boat and sail out past the break into open waters, I found these new understandings of the same texts, this new meaning from the same stories. And part of it was taking my attention away from all of the bizarreness in the book of Revelation and allowing myself to focus on simple ideas, clearer imagery. I don't know what the lake of sulfur symbolizes. I think it's probably not a literal lake of sulfur. But I know what it means when it says the gates will never be shut. And that seems too good to be true based on how I was raised in the faith. And in this way, I believe the book of Revelation actually offers an invitation. Yes, it is an invitation to the powers of evil, those who would leverage violence and domination for their own good. Those who dwell outside the city, yes, in a lake of sulfur, or if you like, in the Dead Sea, which is the salty lake. Um, It's an invitation to those powers of evil to come into the city. Listen, there's no gate we have to lift up. There's nobody standing on the, the, uh, what's the top of the wall called? The parapet, ready to shoot you. The gates are open, just come on in. It's never too late to come in because her gates will never be shut. No matter what you've done, there's always a chance for redemption. And it is also an invitation to those who already define themselves as in, but who felt they had to sign up for this violent view of the end or for an existence that was entirely based on judgment and the fear of being cast into torment. If you have spent your whole life of faith in terror because of how the end was presented to you, might I invite you to get saved today? Saved from that fear-based faith. Saved from the expectation to judge not only others, I mean, you shouldn't judge others, but probably we should in this way, right? But also to judge yourself. Saved from the preoccupation with wrath and punishment as the solution to every problem. If you are raised in that type of religious bondage, I invite you today, come to the fountain. Come to the river of life. Come live in the city of peace. God has always been present. God is present with you now. God will be present in the end. You unlock God's grace in your life by coming to understand and accept that and live your life in accordance with it. God will wipe away the tears from your eyes in the end. And I don't think that means that you shouldn't think about them now or that you should pretend you're not in pain. 
because I also believe that what God wants to do is invite you and invite me into the work that God is doing now, even now, this process of redemption and salvation, not just for individual souls, but for the entire creation and for the entire community of humanity that God made. And I believe that God wants to do that here and now, not just in the sweet by and by. The gates to this city of peace are open to you too. Even and maybe even especially those who thought you already lived there. Because remember, the book of Revelation was not written to the so-called pagan peoples. It was written to the churches. Our churches need to get saved. (laughs) They did then and they do now. So I'm going to invite you to do something that we don't always do here, but I'm going to ask you to do it today as much as you're comfortable, and that is to participate in uh, a meditation of sorts. So I'll encourage you to start by finding a comfortable seated position, wherever you are. If you're listening on the podcast, maybe don't close your eyes while you're driving, but otherwise you can close your eyes or soften your gaze. It's very interesting that all kinds of meditation traditions focus on the breath because this is how the creation story, one of them anyway, gives us our understanding of what it means to be alive, that God breathed into our nostrils. So I'm going to ask you to breathe in through your nose deeply, all the way into your belly and filling up your chest. And then a a slow breath out. And take another deep breath like that. Your body is here in this room. You are present in this place. And I want you to notice how you feel physically. If you have tension in your body, you can try to release it. Maybe scan down through starting with your head and your forehead and your cheeks and your mouth and your jaw and your shoulders and arms and abdomen all the way down through your legs and feet. This body which God gave you is here now. Let it be at peace. And I want you to hold out your left hand openly, remembering the past, which may contain lots of pain for you. If your recent past is too painful, go back further. All the way back to the time of creation, if you will. God as Alpha, the letter A, the beginning of everything, God was present. And now do the same thing with your right hand and imagine your future, which may cause you a lot of stress too. If you need to go all the way past whatever you're worried about to the very, very, very end of all things, whatever it might look like, Think of the omega, the letter Z. God will be there at the end. And take one of those deep breaths, sitting with the remembrance that God is Alpha and Omega. God is in the past and the future. 
And now I'll encourage you to take those two outstretched palms and put them together so that they can feel each other. And as the past touches the future, be reminded that God not only was and will be, but that God is. And if you know your Bible, you can complete that verse by saying God is love. Know that as the past and future touch each other in the present, God is with you and God is love. You are here in this body, in this time, and so is God. If you're worried about the past or worried about the future, it's not that those things don't matter, but it is true that they do not exist. And that what you have right now is a present in which God wants to love you, empowering you then to love your neighbors. Take one more deep breath, inhaling the knowledge of God's love and let it out, exhaling God's love, imagining that extending beyond you into the community around you. And you can relax your hands and blink your eyes open. My prayer is that this helped you embody the presence of God. And as always, with anything I say or suggest, if it didn't, you can just gently let it go. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.